I, I can tell you that would have been helpful to have had done this episode like yeah. four years ago before I was working in primary care. <laughs> uh, Brian, uh, do you want to do a pick of the week for the audience or? I mean, I was going to do beta methasone clotrimazole, but I don't know. If, uh, I was kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, fine. <laughs> Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash act more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the curbsiders. Well, hello, Matt. Hi, Hi Stuart. Hi, how are you doing? That's Stuart. Three. We have a great show tonight, don't we? We do? Yeah. I think we do. I thought this yeah. was a great one. We're, re- we're recording it, this after the show. That's and... right. I'm itching to find out what's happening <laughs> in the show. <laughs> You're giving the pun up front, or do you have like another one locked and loaded for later? I will have to come up with another one. <laughs> I think that one was squeaky clean. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with two co-hosts. But one of them is not Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. That's I'm not sorry. me. Paul mm. has a huge fan club, and uh, they're going to be very disappointed he's not here. But we have a great crew, don't we, Stuart? I think we do. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's me. So I think it's great. Oh, and Brian Brown too. <laughs> Glad to be back. Uh, I just heard uh, our producer just sent me a note. Uh, Beth just sent me a note that uh, the hashtag Free Paul is trending on Twitter. So oh no, uh, look is out for really? that one. <laughs> <laughs> Free Paul. Brian, did you want to re- remind the audience who you are? Uh, yep. So I'm a third year resident in the internal medicine primary care program at Yale. Um, and I am a proud correspondent of the Curbsiders, maybe about to do a spinoff called the Dermsiders, <laughs> maybe just go up and do my own thing. But uh, but for now, I'll stick around here. Yes, so. he did. Uh, and he you you were on the giant cell arteritis, uh, temporal arteritis episode, and you've done some great artwork for us. Which, uh, That's right. which people should definitely look out for. So thank you for that, and welcome back. Thanks. Uh, did, you, did you want to give a pick of the week? Uh, sure. So I recently saw um, one of the big movies of last year, Hidden Figures, um, which was is about... Um, it, it was. And uh, so it's Never a historical this. biopic um, about... Uh, three African-American women who were involved in the space program during the space race. And it's just a really nice story. I mean, it talks about some, you know, history that's not well told. And it's just a really nice, inspiring story about equal opportunities for careers in science and math. So I think it comes at a great time. And uh, it's it's, uh, family friendly, unlike my last (laughs) recommendation. And uh, so I can actually watch this one. Yeah, totally. Oh, excellent. Well, Stuart, Stuart, thanks you. I'm not up on my movies. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I definitely thank you. Right. And most of the movies recommended on this podcast by Dr. Paul Williams are inappropriate for most viewers. So, <laughs> Yes, hilariously so, though. Let me introduce the episode. Our guest is Dr. Cal Watsky. He is a graduate of Boston University School of Medicine and completed his residency and chief residency in dermatology at Yale New Haven Hospital in 1990. He is the site director for dermatology at the St. Raphael Campus of Yale New Haven Hospital and a clinical professor of dermatology at Yale Medical School. He is an expert in dermatitis. And on this episode, we go over 
atopic dermatitis, the different types of contact dermatitis, how to go through the differential diagnosis when you see a patient who has dermatitis, which is quite large. We talk about how to describe the common skin lesions and then pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic therapy and counseling, a little bit about patch testing, and then, of course, some questions from Facebook. This episode is full of great usable content, but the first six minutes of this interview where we're kind of getting to know Cal... We're plagued by a really bad phone connection. So if you're the type of person uh, who's going to be bothered by that, then skip forward six minutes. But I would highly recommend that you listen to the full thing. Cal's a great guy, and he had some nice uh, words of wisdom for us in that first uh, six minutes of the interview. But if that's going to bother you, jump ahead six minutes, and you get right into the episode, uh, Clinical Pearls. That's it. Hi, Cal. How are you? Uh, well, good evening. Glad to be here, Matt. Thank you. Yes. Good to have you on. <laughs> Welcome. This, yes, we, we love talking dermatology on the show. We've done it a couple times, and I, was, I thought that talking about dermatology on air wouldn't work, but actually, I think it's really helpful for us to learn how to describe these things. And uh, as Stuart read us, uh, Stuart, we had some listeners who caught some cases, right? Yeah, actually, they did, yes. It was a dress syndrome. They, they, we got some people writing in that they caught a few cases of dress syndrome based on a previous episode that we did. So I thought that was quite remarkable. Yeah. yeah. I'm in favor of all, uh, of all opportunities to, to test your metal. So okay. there we go. <laughs> Cal, I wanted to start off by asking you if you could do this for the audience, just give them kind of a one-liner to describe yourself uh, as you would do in the hospital talking about a patient. Sure. Uh, I'm a 60-year-old dermatologist in private practice since 1990 uh, at Yale uh, New Haven Hospital, St. Rachel's campus. Um, and I'm the uh, husband of a uh, wife who's a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, father of two kids. And um, I have a great love of medicine and a great love of outdoor adventure. Excellent. I... Uh... Are you intimidated, uh, like living with someone who is a psychoanalyst? Is that is that a difficult thing? It seems like it seems like it might be. Uh, no, 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 not at all. Uh, you have to remember that both skin and brain are ectodermally derived, and in <laughs> uh, fact, I do most of the therapy at home. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that. Brian or Stuart, did you want to ask any questions? I'll defer to Brian right now, and then I'll ask in a second. Sure. Uh, so, Dr. Watsky, since you do like to do a bit of travel, I was wondering, if you were to get stuck in an airport, uh, how might you spend your time? Well, uh, you know, I never travel without something to read, so I would be not noticing that I'm stuck. <laughs> so you, you would welcome the diversion? It's not a problem. Okay. You know, once you've entered the flow of the travel system, if you don't let yourself go, You'll only mm. get upset. Are you a it. are you a platinum member? Do you have access to the platinum lounges? No. no okay. I can manage very well as a plebe. It's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Wise words. Mm. I wanted to ask a question about: Do you have a favorite website that or app that you can recommend to the audience related to dermatology? Well, uh, I was thinking about this. I don't use apps a lot. Uh, but one that I did um, 
discover one of I think one of the uh, residents recommended to me was good RX because these days one of the biggest challenges is to help patients find where they can get their prescriptions um, at a reasonable uh, price and 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 then that helped that searches uh, options in that way uh, in the local pharmacy markets. That's great. Does that does that test based on formularies as well, or does that identify formularies and different price, you know, copays? Uh, that I'm not sure about. Okay. Um, you know, and and sometimes it ends up being that the patients can uh, purchase outside of insurance because for some products you may find that that there are specials um, offered by by various pharmacies that uh, you know have a five dollar option for for some commonly prescribed medications. Okay, mm. that's a good tip. Yeah, it is. So, I know you you somewhat alluded to this before we started recording, but uh, what book would you recommend that every physician read? Mm. So, um, amongst the other things that I do, I, I teach a course at um, at the Yale Medical School, a required course for first year students, uh, where we go to the Yale um, uh, Center for British Art and look at paintings uh, to describe them and help the uh, students uh, develop their observational skills. I think one of the things that I've I've learned in doing that is, and and through my own practice, is uh, the limitations of our brains. And one of the ways that uh, that's been explained to me best is in a book uh, by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And I'd highly mm-hmm. recommend that book for all physicians. Okay. Yeah, and. Uh... We talked with another physician, an emergency medicine physician, who was talking about the system one and system two thinking, and that that is where that book popularized that terminology. So, correct, correct. Yeah. All right, great. We need we need them both. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. At this point, I think we can kind of move on to the main topic. And Brian, I think you had a case that you saw that you wanted to read, huh? I do. I saw a case at Cashlack Memorial Hospital, a 45-year-old man with a history of childhood eczema and asthma, but asymptomatic during his young adulthood, now presents with two months of itchy, scaly rash of the bilateral upper extremities, including the palms. He works as a cement mixer during the day and washes dishes for a restaurant at night. On exam, there is flaking skin in his bilateral palms and red pruritic patches scattered on his forearms. And that's deliberately vague. (laughs) Brian, so where do you want to start? So I know a lot of this uh, episode is going to be a bit about nomenclature and getting our story straight here. So uh, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about atopic dermatitis and also sum up whether eczema is synonymous with that, whether one falls under the other as a broader category and kind of a general baseline definition of that. Certainly. Um, I think that uh, people use uh, the term eczema interchangeably with atopic dermatitis, but uh, because not everyone does, uh, it can be quite confusing. And unless you modify the term eczema or dermatitis, which are in fact interchangeable, eczema and dermatitis basically mean the same thing, mm-hmm. inflamed skin, that's, that's all that means. Uh, unless you modify that with additional terms, uh, you may find yourself um, not certain of what you're talking about. So when we do discuss atopic dermatitis, uh, which I think is a much preferable term to eczema, you could use the term atopic eczema as well. That would be equivalent. Um, 
we're talking about a process that usually begins in, in childhood, can be uh, genetic, and involves uh, two main features. One is a stratum corneum that uh, is more permeable to water than normal, so there's a barrier uh, function problem. And the second uh, is some immune dysregulation, uh, so the skin's immune system is over-responsive. And those combine to produce uh, what we call atopic dermatitis and may be associated, uh, not uncommonly, with um, asthma and uh, seasonal-type allergic uh, symptoms. So um, the barrier uh, problem results in uh, small uh, fissures and uh, excessive dryness that then leads to itch, um, the itch will lead to scratching, and that's where the term, uh, the itch that rashes, um, uh, comes for atopic dermatitis because patients who have atopic dermatitis can generate their skin lesions uh, simply by scratching. And, and, uh, and so that's an important thing to understand. It sounds like a product slogan, uh, the, the itch that rashes. It just sounds like a, a slogan for a product, a terrible product at that. But uh, uh, Right. That's true. Not one that most people would want to buy. Right. Uh, uh, on the other hand, patients who do have itchy and dry skin are the target of a tremendous pitch from a variety of manufacturers with products galore for them, many of which are actually terrible. So for, for kids, for example, uh, who have atopic dermatitis, they may be inclined, parents may be inclined by virtue of, of advertising pressure to purchase products for baby. But many products for baby are made with um, lots of fragrance, which is often an irritant for patients with atopic dermatitis, uh, or are uh, composed of harsher soaps than are necessary because parents associate squeakiness with cleanliness. Right? We talk about squeaky clean. But squeaky clean isn't clean at all. It's just dry. <laughs> so once you've stripped all the oil from the skin, you get squeak, uh, but it's not something that I would... Uh, see as a goal. And yet many, many patients, especially once they've been brought up to think it this way, don't feel clean if they <laughs> use soaps that don't leave them feeling squeaky. So this squeaky. can be um, a, a real problem. <laughs> I can't say I've ever felt squeaky. Yeah. I, I love that fact. <laughs> That's well, great. <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty important. And, uh, you know, if you take a, a walk down your local pharmacy and, you know, just take any product off the shelf, you'll you'll see that they're filled with all kinds of products, but many of those will contain fragrance. And, mm-hmm. and uh, being on the lookout, and, and there's been even some recent regulatory interest, in, even in this anti-regulatory time, in identifying what it is to be hypoallergenic, um, because there isn't a clear understanding of what that really, really means. Uh, I don't want to digress too much on that. Uh, we'll come back to the immune dysregulation, and, and that is um, typically results in in people who have atopic dermatitis being very sensitive to lots of various uh, environmental triggers. And uh, and they're not specifically allergic, but but their immune system responds with a cascade that ultimately results in many of the same skin changes that we would associate with allergy. And so for going back to our our 45-year-old man with a known history of childhood atopic dermatitis and asthma, um, I would have counseled him as a child to never pursue a job that involved wet work. And here the poor guy is working as a cement mixer during the day and washing dishes at night. 
So this is a person who would have really benefited from early intervention uh, because he's now in a position where he, he's probably not going to be able to continue doing the jobs that he's, he's trained to. So, so uh, one, when you're taking care of patients who have atopic dermatitis, it's, it's good to think ahead and think realistically about what this means. Uh, many pediatricians in counseling, uh, parents will, will say, well, eventually they'll grow out of it. Your child will grow out of, of their atopic dermatitis. But in fact, no one grows out of atopic dermatitis. It, it just evolves as we age. Mm -hmm. And how does it show up most commonly in adulthood? Uh, is, uh, it shows up as hand dermatitis. And so this is a really big problem for people who, who again, didn't think that their atopic dermatitis was going to be with them throughout their lives. Yeah, I was actually going to say that the, see, the, the, the kid does outgrow the atopic dermatitis when they turn 18 and the pediatrician never sees them anymore. Uh, so thus they well, never we see all the atopic benefit from dermatitis. That. We all benefit from that. And when you don't get feedback about the mistakes that you've made, it's really hard to learn. That's right. So, He's 26 so now. I haven't seen him come back. This is something that I've, that I've learned through painful experience in, uh, throughout my career because uh, New Haven is a small town and so everybody knows everybody. Cal, I wanted to quickly ask, Castile soap, that's one of these products that's meant that's marketed as being better for these patients uh, to use on their skin. Is, that, is there any truth to that? Are you familiar with the product? I've heard of the product. I, I, I think it might be a more pure form of soap. I could be wrong about that. Mm -hmm. And the more pure, the more likely it is to be more irritating. Okay. So I, I would look for mild soaps, and mild soaps are ones that, that are... Um, Contain moisturizer and don't mm. leave your skin feeling squeaky. Like Dove or for like for, for to, to not use a um, a particular brand name. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's not Buzz Market for that. Dove, Stuart. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to. I'm, well, I'm I'm trying to say. So, what would our listeners have have access to is is kind of what I'm trying to ask, right? So, yeah, what should it say on the label? Yeah. There, well, you should look for for soaps that that are considered fragrance free. Okay. or at least um, low fragrance, and ones that are designed as, um, for, for sensitive skin. Uh, I think looking for that, those labels. But again, like I told you, uh, the labeling right now for hypoallergenic is really, is really tricky. So the liquid soaps can be more, more sensitive for some patients, but mm. they contain more ingredients. And some of those ingredients, like the surfactants that are used, are sources of allergy for, for some patients. So the, the safest soaps are the, uh, the bar soaps that are uh, labeled probably these days hypoallergenic or for sensitive skin. Okay. And, uh, and you should sort of assess them by seeing whether they leave you feel, feeling squeaky. If they do, then it's not, it's not good for, for really for anybody. No, no one needs squeaky skin, frankly. I'm still hung up on the squeaky. I've never felt squeaky. <laughs> well... Right, you've heard squeaky clean, I'm sure. I, I've, I have heard that. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm not going to get into the nomenclature. I'm just, I'm just. It just <laughs> well, seems. No, I, I, I think that we get stuck in this. Gets stuck in our brains. You can't get it out easily. So, I mean, the advertisers are smart that way. We're fighting a, a very, very challenging, um, battle that way. So, uh, Brian, can you put us back on track here? Sure. So, um, so we've talked about uh, some characteristics of eczema. What, what else would you put on the differential of a patient like this? Uh, things that could imitate atopic dermatitis. Certainly. Um, well, Brian, I, I think that one thing to remember is that patients who have atopic dermatitis 
are at greater risk for irritant contact dermatitis. And so those may coexist. So we shouldn't disregard the possibility of multiple diagnoses. And in fact, that's probably the, more the norm uh, for patients who have atopic dermatitis and who present with a worsening of their condition. Um, but there are other conditions that, can, uh, that look like dermatitis. Dermatitis is red and scaly. And so there's a whole list of so-called papulosquamous disorders, and, and those are disorders that are, are reddish and uh, thin plaques or thicker plaques and scaly. And those include seborrheic dermatitis, uh, pityriasis, rosea, uh, tinea, uh, and its variants, so fungal infections, uh, psoriasis, lichen planus, talk about stasis dermatitis. Um, so all those things are examples of papulosquamous disorders and, um, and may sometimes uh, be mistaken for um, other forms of dermatitis. That sounds, it sounds like a lot. Uh, so how are we going to differentiate between all of these different ones? Because I don't know that I could, I don't know that I, I know how to do that. So that's why we're talking to you. <laughs> that's, I think that that's, uh, I think that that is important. Um, one thing uh, that would help is to spend a little time reading about these things when you see them. Uh, if you have the opportunity to work with a dermatologist, because in the end, uh, everybody can improve their ability in this way. But um, let's, we can go down the list very quickly. Um, you know, seborrheic dermatitis has a particular distribution. That's basically dandruff on the scalp, mm -hmm. but you can see red and scaly patches on the central part of the face, around the nose and the eyebrows, on the chest, can also sometimes be in the axillae. And so uh, you won't be able to distinguish seborrheic dermatitis from atopic dermatitis on the basis of a biopsy, and there's no laboratory test. So this becomes a clinical diagnosis and one that you can make based on distribution and appearance. Um, Pityriasis rosea, similarly, um, the lesions are discrete. Uh, the uh, initial lesion uh, is maybe uh, larger than, than the lesions that follow and it will be solitary as a rule. And it's a round or oval scaly patch or thin plaque. And, and then the subsequent lesions of pityriasis rosea are going to be numerous and scattered, uh, but typically follow relaxed skin tension lines. That's a self-limited disorder probably caused by a virus. Um, but it can often be mistaken for other conditions. Uh, the herald patch, that initial lesion, is often mistaken for a tinea infection. And, uh, but a scraping, a KOH, would be negative. Hmm. Now, how do we make a diagnosis of tinea, uh, fungal infections? Well, you know, um, uh, if you do feel comfortable doing a KOH preparation, that can give you a bedside diagnosis. But distribution, again, can be very helpful. So rashes in the groin over the soles that include the interdigital spaces, um, involvement of the toenails, that can lead you to a diagnosis of, of tinea or a superficial fungal infection. Lichen planus, that's an itchy condition, and that's uh, got a lot of P's associated with it. So purple polygonal uh, papule, uh, that's pruritic. And these lesions are typically on, uh, on the wrists and ankles, although it can be in other distributions. And that may be one of the more challenging diagnoses of the ones that I've, that I've mentioned here. Uh, psoriasis, uh, this also has a characteristic distribution. The lesions tend to be more red, uh, brightly red, and the scale is quite characteristic. It's this ivory white scale that we call micaceous, 
and it's generally quite adherent. Seborrheic dermatitis, the scale is greasy and loose. In psoriasis, it's very tight, and if you pluck the scale, you'll see little bleeding points. That has a name. It's called sign, and um, that's just a, a, a measure of the superficial uh, blood vessels and a thinning of, the, of what we call the suprapapillary plate. So that's a, an in vivo um, example of uh, uh, the pathologic appearance of psoriasis, where the blood vessels are very close to the surface. And that's in part what it gives it uh, its brightly red color. Stasis dermatitis, that's uh, typically going to be on the lower extremities. And uh, patients who have stasis dermatitis uh, will, will also have red and scaly areas, but they'll be associated typically with edema. And there may be some signs of chronicity. So you'll see um, hyperpigmentation um, indicative of past uh, episodes of the same condition. So, so again, these are clinical diagnoses uh, that require some experience and, and some comfort in, in your assessment. But, but every internist can learn these things. I wanted to just jump in. I recently saw a patient with really bad seborrheic dermatitis on the face, and I was talking about it to my one of my residents, and the and the infectious disease doctor came up and is like, grabs me. She's like, "Did you check this patient for HIV?" And we had, and it was negative. But when I was reading about this uh, to to figure out what I was going to treat him with, they mentioned it's also associated with Parkinson's disease, which I had never heard of before. And this guy actually had Parkinson's disease, um, which was sort of in the process of being diagnosed. Is that is that a common thing? Because I had never heard of it. Uh, it is an association, but seborrheic dermatitis is exceedingly common. Mm-hmm. And um, it, unless it's treatment refractory, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't, especially these days, uh, initiate a workup for HIV. You okay. might ask a question or two about risk factors. That wouldn't ever be wrong. But... You know, if a, if a patient's presenting with scalp scaling and erythema and a little bit of, uh, re, of, a, of, of similar changes on the central face and responds quickly to topical therapies, in the absence of any, any risk factors, I, I, I wouldn't initiate a big workup. And, and as for the, um, the Parkinson's, I've certainly seen that association, and I know that it's true. But again, it's not enough of a marker to use uh, uh, to justify a workup for, for that condition. Okay. So as we're talking about these different imitators, and I intentionally picked a case that had this hand involvement, and I know you said just for atopic dermatitis in adults in general, that's common. I've come across in clinic this entity of dyshydrotic eczema, which I think of as people who wash their hands a lot and involves the hands and has certain specific findings. Is Mm -hmm. that a very different diagnosis than just atopic dermatitis in adults involving the hands? Is it an overlap? Well, I think that it's really important to understand that it's basically just a description. It's a description of a clinical mm-hmm. phenotype, and that's all. It's okay. not a true entity. Now, you to to call and and when we when we talk about uh, vesicular dermatitis of the of the hands, dyshydratic eczema might be one of the diagnoses that comes into mind. And there is probably a variant that you could you could call dyshydratic eczema, but these are tiny little vesicles, typically um, on the lateral aspects of the digits, and maybe um, seasonal, uh, maybe uh, intermittent. They could certainly be made worse by environmental exposures. So th- those are that would be what we would call dyshydratic eczema, I guess. But does dyshydratic eczema exist independent of other 
of other forms of, of dermatitis. Not, not that often. Oftentimes it's associated with a past um, history consistent with atopic dermatitis. So, so I think that that's important to understand. And, and a new onset of, of vesicular dermatitis on the hands should raise the possibility at least of, uh, of allergic contact dermatitis. And so, so those patients merit further evaluation. Can you tell us when you're in clinic, you're seeing a patient with atopic dermatitis, we talked a little bit about the behavior modifications, soaps and things like that. Is there anything else that you tell them about their day-to-day, like what they need to do to kind of help treat this condition? Always. Yes. Uh, those environmental modifiers are hugely important. And so, um, you know, sometimes you'll find that, and I just had a case like this, where someone came in complaining that their hands were, were dry. And, and I, I asked that person, uh, well, how many times a day do you wash? And this is a person who does work where he feels as though he has to wash a lot. So then I asked, well, what do you use to wash? And once you get, the, you know, begin to open that conversation, then you can begin to modify uh, mm. because, because that allows the patient to realize, oh, I mean, there's other ways of accomplishing what it is that I want to accomplish. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, I've discovered uh, for example, that the alcohol gels that we use to clean in the hospital hmm. are much less likely to cause significant dryness and, and hand irritation than soap and water. Hmm. And when the alcohol gels were first introduced, and I'm old enough to remember when that happened, um, I fully anticipated that I would be seeing tons of people with hand dermatitis coming from the hospital population, you know, the caregivers. And that has not been the case. Uh, so, so that's one thing that I offer to, to folks. Many times um, people have heard that they should not shower or shower quick or use this or that temperature water. I don't think any of that is really very important. I would really, I would be very reluctant about telling someone that they can't do exactly what they want in the shower. It's just not fair. And, and it can really be a bad way to start the day. So, but what I would say is once you're done showering, first of all, use a mild soap. And we've already discussed a little bit what that means and how, tricky it might be to actually identify the right one. Hmm. But uh, once, uh, you know, if it's with a mild soap, then, then what you do when you come out is you pat dry, you don't rub, and you moisturize right away while the skin's a little damp. That's going to be your best bet for, for helping somebody who has a tendency to dry skin or even atopic dermatitis as an environmental help. So, so and then for, for all of these patients, Figuring out what moisturizer they're actually willing to use is really, really important. As much as only a fraction of our prescriptions get filled, only a fraction of the, these bits of advice that we offer will be uh, adhered to as well. So if you don't negotiate with a patient right from the get-go, understanding that there's a gazillion products out there because there's a gazillion preferences, you, you won't really accomplish the goal. And so some people will not use what you think is the best product. So you've, you've got to let them make the choice, but you can help to guide them. And so that's where um, samples can be helpful and uh, letting patients try different things because a lot of times people aren't willing to try different things. I always use this. Mm-hmm. But if you can make it accessible to them, then be, they might be willing and, and, and they can find a product that you think is safe and that they think is comfortable. You know, for guys in particular, they hate putting things on their skin. Don't use sunscreen, <laughs> don't use don't like to use moisturizer. So you've got to find products that don't leave much of a residue. If, or uh, here's another trick, use it at night. And, um, and for the hands in particular, use it with loose fitting plastic gloves. 
So if you get cracks at the tip of your fingers because you wash your hands an awful lot during the day, you can modify the way you wash your hands, but you can help by using moisturizers, even heavy ones that they, that person might not be willing to use during the day. At night, wearing loose-fitting plastic gloves like the kind you might find at a, at a salad bar. So, Matt, did you want to ask about the wet pajamas? <laughs> yes, yes. We, we had a – when I was in the military, we had this young kid who had shown up. He must have been allergic to something in the dorms where he was staying. He had this terrible scaly rash all over his entire body. And the prescription from dermatology was he would, he would bathe. He would pat dry, put on a whole jar of emollient, and then he would put on wet pajamas and get in bed. <laughs> um, that's hard to do with the wet pajamas. Yeah. Uh, up to that point, I was with you. Um, <laughs> we use occlusive therapy all the time. And, um, and for little kids, you might be able to do that pajama thing. And then, you know, you put uh, like uh, plastic to protect the bed. Um, that you, you could theoretically do that. And in the hospital setting, we used to do things like that. Um, but we, we do two things in dermatology that, that are really simple but very, very effective. So one is something called open wet dressing. And that's okay. where you take a single thickness cotton sheet, uh, you soak it in cool or lukewarm water, whatever, whatever temperature, frankly, and wring it out so that it's damp. It shouldn't be dripping wet, but just damp. And then you put it over the area that's affected. Now, if it's the whole body, that becomes a little tricky, but that's where the, the pajama thing comes in. And then you let that evaporate. And when that evaporates, that uh, can take a lot of the heat out of the, uh, of the dermatitis. And that's at, at that point that you put on the topical uh, medications and moisturizers. So that's open wet dressing. And it's mostly useful for, for more localized uh, rashes, especially, for example, on the face. It's usually helpful there. Um, and sometimes just doing that with a moisturizer will be enough to solve the problem. The other so, thing is to use occlusive therapy. And so the example that you gave incorporates that as well by, by putting clothing on top of the uh, topical medications. But the reality is that cotton is more absorptive than our skin. So I, I usually avoid, in fact, I always tell patients not to use, for example, uh, cotton gloves uh, overnight with their moisturizers because they'll wake up in the morning with really well lubricated gloves and not so well lubricated hands. <laughs> Love it. What about uh, bleach baths for atopic dermatitis? What do you think about that? Gosh, it is great that you just asked that question. Did you see the article today? <laughs> I, I may have. <laughs> ah, well, it's, it's said that bleach baths are no more effective than, um, than plain water in relieving the way they were very careful about what they said in right. relieving the symptoms of atopic dermatitis. Well, we're not talking about the symptoms. Right. We're talking about colonization with Staph aureus. So when we're, when we're um, using bleach baths, the goal is to help decolonize. That's the point. And it's incredibly useful. Uh, infection is uh, a really important way that, first of all, uh, all forms of dermatitis can be modified to make it harder to identify as a primary diagnosis. And second of all, it can really complicate therapy. So if you see lots of fissures, that usually means that there's access for, for bacteria, right. and more than likely the patient is secondarily at least impetigenized, if not truly infected. You won't see frank cellulitis necessarily, uh, but it can really complicate their treatment. I, I vividly remember one case of a, of a healthcare worker who had terrible hand dermatitis, and their hand dermatitis turned out to be an allergy to one of the topical steroids that they were using, but also the patient was colonized with MRSA on their hands. 
And so there was no way that they were going to get better with their standard therapies. They'd only been treated with topical steroids, had never mm. been, been diagnosed as having an infection. And so right. by, uh, by finding the allergy and treating the infection, that patient was able to recover. So, so uh, you know, that's uh, an extreme example. But, but again, uh, that's the purpose of the bleach bath. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that the article that Cal is referring to, it's actually from Medscape. It's plain water baths is as effective as bleach baths for eczema. And it references an article by uh, Chopra et al. that was published in the Annals of Allergy, I believe, from uh, November of 2017, Efficacy of Bleach Baths in Reducing Severity of Atopic Dermatitis, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're thank you for that. Well, I think we should move on. Maybe we can talk about treatment altogether at the end, and now we can talk a little bit about uh, contact or irritant dermatitis. So can you tell us a little bit about those conditions and how we can figure out if someone has those versus atopic dermatitis? Sure. Well, as I've already said, it's not at all uncommon for patients with atopic dermatitis to develop a form of contact dermatitis. And the most common form of contact dermatitis is irritant contact dermatitis. So if a person with atopic dermatitis starts washing their hands a lot, they're going to develop an irritant contact dermatitis superimposed on their atopic dermatitis. Um, I think the best way to think about contact dermatitis is if you think about uh, dermatitis as uh, endogenous when it's an atopic dermatitis or many of the other conditions that we've mentioned where it's, it's not primarily caused by external factors versus exogenous, where it is, in fact, uh, caused by external factors, perhaps almost exclusively. So we have irritant contact dermatitis, and we have allergic contact dermatitis. Uh, irritant contact dermatitis is something that anybody can get if they're exposed enough, although people who have an impaired barrier, like those with atopic dermatitis, are, are more likely to experience this. It doesn't require any immune engagement in that way. Allergic contact dermatitis is something that only happens if, you have a, if you've been sensitized. So allergens are all around us, and our immune systems are constantly vigilant, but not everybody who's exposed to these various allergens will develop actual allergy. So allergic contact dermatitis is a, a fascinating disorder in that way because it requires um, a genetic predisposition. But we have not identified the ways in which our genetics predispose us. And so we can't predict who will become allergic with exposure. Um, well, what I can say is that if um, you are around poison ivy enough, you're more likely than not to become allergic to poison ivy uh, because it's a very, very strong sensitizer. And so some of these um, allergens are, are, are very, very potent sensitizers and some of them are weak sensitizers. Um, another strong sensitizer uh, is nickel. So people who get their ears pierced with nickel, um, with the, the metal nickel, uh, will develop um, allergic contact dermatitis. Other exposures uh, have made um, nickel the, the most common allergen uh, in testing by um, those who, who do patch testing for, for their professional existence like, like I do. So, so that's allergic contact dermatitis. Now, there's a couple of other forms of, of outside dermatitis that I should mention. They're pretty interesting. One uh, is phototoxic dermatitis. And so that requires um, a chemical that is photoactivated um, and can produce an exaggerated sunburn reaction. Uh, this is most commonly seen 
for example, uh, with certain weeds, um, but, but other uh, fruits and vegetables can do it as well. Um, and so the residue of, of these chemicals on the skin can lead to an exaggerated sunburn. And we call that phytophotodermatitis. And um, it, it typically, if it's the weeds and you've been walking through it, you'll end up with streaks of hyperpigmentation because after the blisters heal, you have, have a really good tan, um, so, so, but only in the areas where you've been, been exposed. And in fact, we use chemicals like that therapeutically. Uh, sorolins, uh, which you may have heard of, uh, were used uh, in um, the phototherapy called PUVA, sorolin plus ultraviolet A light, uh, to treat psoriasis. We, we don't need to use that as much anymore. And in fact, uh, PUVA was uh, implicated in, in, in um, a significant increase in skin cancer risk in patients who'd had a lot of treatments. And so we've moved away from, from that therapy. And then we also have photoallergic contact dermatitis. And, and so people who are exposed to certain chemicals, and ironically, many of those are the photoactivatable chemicals that are found in sunscreens, I may develop an actual allergy to those uh, that requires the presence of light uh, to to cause the reaction. So, so that's that's a precy of of contact dermatitis. So, I know in that description you alluded to one of your passions, which is patch testing. Um, in simple terms, for the internists and uh, primary providers listening. Uh, when should we consider patch testing? Is it sort of right away or is it in some of these subsets of people where we're not sure what the exposure is? When do we consider that? That's a really important question. I think the first thing to understand is what is it? And so, and, and what does it do? So patch testing is, is used to identify um, allergens that are responsible for type 4 reactions, so delayed type hypersensitivity. We don't use patch testing to try and diagnose immediate type hypersensitivities. So this isn't for the diagnosis of urticaria. Um, it's not for, for anything other than allergic contact dermatitis. And uh, patch testing is a, a tool, a technique, uh, that requires a lot of experience to, to um, be proficient. Uh, but there are commercially available kits, and so uh, dermatologists who aren't necessarily expert will have um, oftentimes access to uh, a commercially available kit that will test uh, 36 allergens. Um, for those of us who do, who do more testing, um, our standard series may range from 65 to 80 allergens and go well over 100 if, if necessary. So who, who merits patch testing? Uh, someone who has uh, uh, a, a new dermatitis that's been recurrent uh, or severe perhaps, you might want to immediately consider patch testing for someone who never previously had a problem and had a, a severe dermatitis that was consistent with a contact dermatitis. In a case where a patient has atopic dermatitis and their condition has changed, so for example, and I see this all the time, uh, someone has atopic dermatitis and every winter they get some hand dermatitis and maybe they're dry generally and, and they're a bit uncomfortable, but they use their medications and everything is okay and it's a seasonal problem that they've that they're able to control. When suddenly they develop a, a new dermatitis that's all over their face or perhaps all over other parts of their body or much more widespread, and this is a, a significant change for them. And to say, well, you have atopic dermatitis, you just have worse atopic dermatitis now, is quite unfair to that patient because they may actually have a preventable problem. And if they can avoid the thing that they're allergic to, they can go back to their status quo ante. And so those are patients who merit patch testing. 
if a patient comes to you and says, listen, I've been having problems with hand dermatitis and I think it's because of this product, there are ways that you yourself could test that uh, if it's a product that's designed to be left on the skin. The patient could do what's called a repeat open application test and take a little bit of their moisturizer and put it on the skin and see if they develop a rash at the site. But that won't tell them what ingredient in their moisturizer might be responsible for their dermatitis. And so that patient looking for the answer to the question would be a good patient to refer for patch testing. And then lastly, if you're a person who has a dermatitis that's impairing your ability to work, you deserve to get patch tested to see if it's possible to continue in the work that you've been doing by avoiding the thing you're allergic to. I'll give you a quick example. I uh, saw a patient who worked as a dental assistant, and, and that work is um, known to be high risk for developing contact allergies to um, a variety of products, but especially epoxies. And she was quite certain she would have to leave her job. And so uh, she was referred to me eventually. She had seen a number of physicians previously, and, um, and I patch tested her. And I found that she was allergic to a chemical called PCMX, which is an antibacterial. Now, that certainly could have been present in her workplace. And if it had been, it would have been pretty easy for her to avoid. But in fact, it was present in the new dog soap that she was using. <laughs> and so her problem was exclusively due to her new dog soap and she didn't have to leave work at all. So a case like that, you can make a very, very big difference in a person's life by solving the mystery, think of it a little bit like Sherlock Holmes, pulling the needle out of the haystack, and, uh, and allowing them to go on in their lives to, uh, you know, without, without that problem. Well, the problem is always with them, but, but without that problem impairing their, their, their life. I want to move on, uh, move back to our case. This forty-five-year-old gentleman who is working, kind of washing dishes. He's mixing cement during the day, and he had the flaking skin on his palms and the red, uh, itchy p- patches on his forearms. So, what what do we think his diagnosis is, or what what can we do to figure it out? And and then we'll move on to kind of the treatment. Well, that's fine. You know, uh, he's he's um, already known to have atopic dermatitis. And uh, he's doing things that can cause a significant irritant contact dermatitis. And so that more than likely, his, one of his diagnoses will be an irritant contact dermatitis. Cement in this country um, is known to uh, cause sensitizations. Uh, the sensitization is to chromate. Um, uh, chromate is a, is a metal, but it's used uh, in the manufacture of, of cement in this country. Uh, in Europe, actually, it's banned. So that risk of allergy there uh, doesn't exist. But our concerns about the public health um, don't rise to the level of, of, of accomplishing that here, sadly. So, so he may be allergic to chromate, and if you found that out, he could never work with cement, period. Uh, so he would need to be patch tested to figure that out if he wanted to continue in that work um, as a cement mixer or bricklayer, you know, exposed to cement. Uh, as far as the washing dishes, probably he could wear gloves and be okay. Um, but we would find a way to help him uh, beyond that, and and I and that's what I think where we're where we're uh, heading with treatment. Great, thanks for that. And I know we previously talked about some of the behavioral modifications, so I wanted to dive in and ask a bit about our favorite topicals, the steroids. So if you could kind of. Get us mm. set up with a general framework, I guess, of if there are different groups of steroids and, and what 
is reasonable for an internist to know in their tool belt? Uh, great. So my my own sense about this is that there, uh, it's not useful to know um, all about every product, um, but that if you realize that topical steroids come uh, in various potencies and then in various formulations, you can become familiar and comfortable with, with some from each. Even if you just get a high, medium, and low potency, that will be a good place to start for most internists. And, and frankly, for most dermatologists, that's enough. Um, so, so we grade potency of topical steroids from class one, the most potent, to class seven, the least. And, uh, you know, finding a, a super high potency topical steroid that you're comfortable with is not wrong, but you should be certain that you know when to use it. So uh, these are products that uh, have significant risk for skin atrophy and other potential side effects, including suppression of the HPA axis. So especially if they're used over a large body surface area. Mm-hmm. So you, you want to have a sense of what you're treating and, and, um, and you also want to plan on a, a time course. Um, but, for example, clobetazole is an example of a, of a class one steroid, and that's a very useful and generally widely available topical steroid. Um, it comes as cream, ointment, and solution. Uh, I think it's even available as lotion, but that's a branded product and much more expensive. Um, so that's a class one steroid, and the places to use that are, for example, with hand dermatitis. That's a place where you need a class one steroid because the uh, stratum corneum of the hand, the top layer of the skin, is so very thick. Uh, same for feet. So hands and feet for class one steroid, that's appropriate. Uh, you wouldn't ever use a class one steroid uh, with only rare exception in skin folds um, uh, or on the face. So, so certainly an internist uh, and most dermatologists would, would never do that. A steroid that I see used frequently is one called betamethasone with clotrimazole. This is a class two steroid. And yet that product is often used to treat problems in intertriginous areas, in the folds that is. And why is this? It's marketed, again, very effectively as a combination of both steroid and uh, and antifungal. Clotrimazole, the antifungal in that combination, is available over the counter. Betamethasone is a class two steroid and so quite potent. Most people who uh, think of this combination think that the steroid is mild, but it isn't. And so uh, I want to caution you to never use that product because <laughs> there, there's no Good utility right. in using clotrimazole along with a super potent steroid. And Cal, what you're saying is like, so you, you said skin folds, so kind of like pits and groin is to put it in it. like uh, medical terms. Yes. And then yes. essentially they're, they're getting and occlusive. And not on the face. And not on the face. And they're getting like, and would that include like between the fingers and toes? Because I've been told that as well. No, I think that's, I think that's excessive. How how are you going to have somebody put it on their hands and not in between? (laughs) No, that's that's not realistic. (laughs) Okay. That would be very, very difficult. And then, but but the idea is skin folds, they're getting like occlusive therapy. So exactly. And And we've talked about the benefits of occlusive therapy. Here's the risk. I'm taking care of someone now who has significant atrophy. I've seen people with ulcers from using uh, high-potency steroids in, in their skin folds. So please don't do that. So, so when you talk about skin thinning or skin atrophy with the steroids, what, what kind of time frame are we talking about? Depends. Uh, it can happen within a week if you've got a super potent steroid on thin enough skin. Uh, right. but, 
you know, generally it's several weeks. And, you know, one of the problems is when you give a prescription to a patient, you, you can't necessarily control it from that moment. And, you know, your best intentions may be flouted. So you, you really need to emphasize the risk uh, in very clear terms. And, and you should never use a superpotent steroid to treat mm. a rash that's primarily in the folds. So, so that's, that's, a, that's a mistake. So a medium potency steroid that comes in uh, several different strengths and so therefore is incredibly useful is triamcinolone. And so that comes in a 0.1%. Uh, so that's really medium potency. Uh, it comes in a 0.5%. So that's higher potency. It comes in a 0.025%. Uh, so that's lower potency. And so it covers a big range. It's available in a one-pound jar. So if you have someone with a widespread rash, this is a good way to manage that. Generally pretty inexpensive because it's generic. Uh, it comes as a cream. It comes as an ointment, a lotion. Uh, and so a very, very useful topical steroid. And, and that should be the workhorse for, for most uh, conditions. It, it, it is even for me. Um, in low potency, you can use hydrocortisone. Um, you can use something up from hydrocortisone, uh, 2.5%. That's a, you know, a little bit stronger than over-the-counter. Um, and then, and then they're, they're, that would be pr- probably your, your go-to for low potency. There's a couple of other choices you may become familiar with, but, but I think that if you think of those three products, hydrocortisone, triamcinolone, and clobetazole, you've covered the full gamut and will basically be able to initiate therapy. Cal, I wanted to just quickly on that point, does the carrier molecule matter? Do we need to pay a lot of attention to that? Triamcinolone, acetate, there, there's fumarate. You some... mean acetonide? Yes. Yes. Yeah, acetonide, e- sorry. E- yes. Um, well, it can matter. Uh, you know, there are, um, there is such a thing as allergy, allergic contact dermatitis, that is, to, to the um, steroid moiety, to the actual um, active ingredients. And there are lower risk uh, medic, uh, steroid molecules that way. Uh, you know, because of my subspecialty interest, I, I try to use those, um, those lower risk uh, products. But, but, but I also use triamcinolone, which is not one of the lower risk because it's so readily available. And unless I have a real index of suspicion, I, I, don't, I don't worry about it. What's an index of suspicion? If the patient has what you think should be a steroid-responsive condition and they don't get better with the topical steroid, you have to wonder, might they be allergic? You have to also wonder, might they not have a steroid-responsive condition? But, but, but that would be the, one of the clues. Um, but otherwise, I don't think that it's necessary to worry too much. Triamcinolone doesn't come with too many other modifiers. Uh, and hydrocortisone does. So you have hydrocortisone, you have hydrocortisone valerate, you have a number of different hydrocortisones. I was referring to this, to the plain hydrocortisone as the low potency. So hydrocortisone 2.5%. And, and then hydrocortisone, because it's available over the counter, is the um, steroid that's most uh, commonly associated with allergic contact dermatitis. But again, that's still a relatively rare condition. You know, most allergic uh, contact dermatitis, most allergens, uh, effect or uh, are, are, are seen in roughly 1% of people who are exposed. So I, I like that take-home point about 
really counseling patients on adverse effects and and limiting duration of use and, and proper use. Given the dangers of using some of these on the face, um, are there other agents, for example, topical calcineurin inhibitors? I've seen those be used, and they seem like a really great alternative. Is that something that could be within an internist scope as well? Absolutely. Uh, topical calcineurin inhibitors, uh, tacrolimus and pimacrolimus, are incredibly useful. There's a newer one that's a prostaglandin inhibitor, and, and that also could be useful, um, crisaberol. Uh, these non-steroid anti-inflammatory agents are incredibly useful. There's also a lot of resistance um, uh, to their use because of, of cost primarily, but also because of a bad rap that these uh, medications got a number of years ago. They carry a black box warning. And this will actually get to one of the other questions that I'd been asked uh, around this podcast earlier. So uh, patients who were tested in the clinical trials with the calcineurin inhibitors early on, um, some of them were found to develop cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Well, it turned out that these patients, and I have this on uh, direct, uh, the direct word of someone who was involved in reviewing the cases, the patients who were enrolled in the trials and who were thought to have atopic dermatitis never had atopic dermatitis. They always had cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, <laughs> but it was a mimic for atopic dermatitis. And when they were treated with um, tacrolimus and didn't get better, and they were discovered to have a diagnosis of, of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, the medication got implicated. Now, the medication got implicated because it does suppress uh, T-cell uh, function, and and there was a thought that perhaps it had allowed a population of abnormal cells to, to, to flourish. But none of us today, that I'm aware of at least, believe that uh, tacrolimus or, or pimacrolimus pose a significant risk in that way. They have another uh, challenging, more challenging in practical use uh, side effect, which is that they can often cause stinging and burning. And so patients often don't tolerate them. To use the um, uh, calcineurin inhibitors best, uh, I never use them for the acute dermatitis. Um, I use topical steroids to calm things down and then uh, transition patients to calcineurin inhibitors once things have, have quieted. Um, patients are much better able or much more likely to tolerate um, the calcineurin inhibitor uh, once their, their dermatitis is, is past the, that most acute phase. I might want to just back up a little bit to our conversation about topical steroids because sometimes people ask me, well, aren't topical steroid ointments better than creams for certain conditions? And what I would tell you is uh, no. Um, the medication that your patient will use is the one that's going to work best. And if a patient tells you, I'm not going to use an ointment, it's too greasy, and you say, but this is really the best thing for you and you prescribe it anyway, you'll find a patient who you don't see again and you've successfully treated because they found another doctor. <laughs> So, 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 you know, it's really important to be flexible there because it doesn't matter so much. Okay. It might matter to you. Maybe one of your teachers hammered it in, but the reality is all these topical steroids will work, will, will work well. And the potency differences between a cream and an ointment are not significant enough to make uh, that difference. And not only that, some patients will want to use ointments where you wouldn't think they would be desired. For example, African-American patients often will choose to use ointments in the scalp, whereas for some other patients, that would be the last thing that they would ever want to do. And so if you don't listen to your patients and you don't, and you don't have a little interaction around that, you will find that your, your therapies aren't used and therefore will never be successful. Cal, I had a patient who was a little old man. He had this kind of recurrent itchy rash on his thigh, 
that he was he was refilling Lidex cream for, and I don't. What's the generic name for that? So I can use that. Fluocinonide. Yeah. So this little old man was using fluocinonide uh, cream on his thighs. And he had, I looked back, he had been refilling it for like 10 years. Of course, this was in the, uh, at Cashlag, he was getting it for very cheap. And, uh, so he kept refilling it. And when I talked to him about it, I was, I, I told him I was worried about him using this because it's, it's one of the higher potency steroids and Correct. he had been using it for years. So if patients do have a condition where they need to use something like this for years, how, what's the safe way to do that? If, if Great someone, question. Yeah. Great question. Here's what I ask. I, 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 for patients who have chronic dermatoses of various kinds, that includes psoriasis, any of the ones that we've discussed, I ask them, how long does it take your condition to clear up if you use the medication every day? The patients will often say, oh, it'll clear up within a week. It'll clear up within two weeks. How long does it take for it to come back once you've stopped? Oh, I never stopped. No, that's not the right answer. Uh, so you want to hear how long does it take to come back? If they say that it takes, oh, it comes back in 10 days, I say, great. Why don't you use this medication once a week, once you've got it clear, and then you won't have to deal with it coming back? Uh, or, or even then you let it start to appear and you use it again right away. So intermittent use is generally quite safe, and that's where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. And most patients will be able to manage at a frequency that's safe. What is safe for a topical steroid? Twice weekly is very unlikely to cause long-term side effects. Twice weekly. So if you can get your patient to a twice weekly maintenance dose, um, they're probably going to be okay. Great. That's really helpful. Uh, I would also add that if the patient is treating a solitary lesion, and they're using topical steroid, and the lesion never goes away, the question should be, how soon do you think that this might be something else? And the answer to that one would be one month. So a patient, and I've seen this any number of times, a patient is given a prescription for what looks like dermatitis. They start to use a medicine, and the condition gets a little better, but it never goes away. They never see their patient, they never see their doctor again, but they get the medication refilled. That's where I thought you were going with your case. Well, I've seen patients with superficial basal cell cancers and uh, squamous cell carcinoma in situ who have been given topical steroid prescriptions by their primary care docs, uh, thinking that the condition, the lesion was a form of dermatitis, and the patient just keep using the medication because it makes it a little bit better. It takes the scale away, but it never really resolves. So for solitary lesions, be careful, number one. You may be dealing with something that's not a form of dermatitis at all. And second of all, uh, to let the patient know if it's not completely gone in a month, I need to know so that we can get you tested to make sure that it isn't something else other than what we think. Oh, this is great stuff. Uh, so uh, how, how many of you all who were discussing tonight, talking with tonight, have had poison ivy? I, 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 oh my I, I never have. The bane yep. of my childhood. I couldn't okay, stay so out of the woods go. and it was okay, terrible. So, so <laughs> almost every one of you as a physician will see a patient with poison ivy. So how do you treat patients with poison ivy? This is a paradigm of allergic contact dermatitis. Remember, we don't patch test for poison ivy. Uh, we make that diagnosis clinically. And uh, poison ivy, when it's affecting widespread areas of the skin, and, and you could use uh, more than 15% of body surface area as a, as a guide for this, um, but, but, but location is also very important. So if you have facial poison ivy and you can't open your eyes 
and that only represents 5% of your body surface area, you still merit systemic treatment. <laughs> Same for hands or feet or groin, I can tell you. Uh, you can see some pretty nasty examples. When you initiate uh, systemic therapy for poison ivy or for any allergic contact dermatitis, you want to treat for at least 10 to 15 days. Uh, the five-day easy option, I think you know what I'm referring to when I say this. <laughs> yes. Um, it comes in a pack. Yeah. <laughs> it comes in a pack. That quick taper will result in what we call rebound. And so I worked in an emergency room when I was in the Navy for three years, and we would give patients treatments for their allergic contact dermatitis, and I probably was told to use that pack. And I never saw the patients again, but I can tell you that a mm -hmm. significant number of them probably ended up in, back in their own doctor's offices miserable because they were much worse because of what we call rebound. Right. So you should never limit the treatment to five days for, for poison ivy or for other examples of allergic contact dermatitis. You've got to go out 10 to 15 days, and you want to start at roughly, I usually use 60 milligrams, uh, but, but roughly uh, in the range of a milligram per kilogram is not wrong. And, um, and then I, I do a 60, 40, 20 taper, five days each uh, for the average sized adult. And that's a very, I think, a very simple way to think about it. It's a, a pretty easy prescription to put in your EMR so that you can pull it up whenever you need it. And, um, and, it, and it makes for much happier patients. Oh, man. I could have used some of that when I was a kid. I never got steroids. I would get like oatmeal baths and stuff like that, but it was just, I was miserable. I'm, so, I'm sorry for that, <laughs> yeah. but, but you, can, you can make it better for someone else. Okay. Stuart, anything from Facebook? Yes, yeah, so a couple. Um, I, I'm not sure if this was addressed earlier when my uh, audio was going out. So one question was, at, at what point should we consider uh, progression to using a calcineurin inhibitor versus just a stronger topical steroid? Well, sure. I, I guess it depends on location more than anything. You shouldn't think of calcineurin inhibitors as necessarily stronger than, than a topical steroid. Um, in fact, they're not. Uh, and they work best on thin skin. So, so if you're talking about hand dermatitis, don't bother with calcineurin inhibitor for most patients. You, you might try it, but I wouldn't count on it working. Uh, higher potency steroid is what's going to be needed. If you're talking, though, about uh, skin folds in the face, and remember, we've already talked about the risk of topical steroids, stronger topical steroids in particular in those locations, then you absolutely want to think very quickly, earlier on, that is, if you're dealing with a condition that you can't cure and so needs chronic therapy, you want to at least uh, consider the possibility of using a calcineurin inhibitor. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next question that we had here was um, what are your thoughts on PUVA for atopical or a, for atopic dermatitis? Um, excellent question. We don't use PUVA anymore, but we do use phototherapy, and it's incredibly useful. We didn't get into the systemic therapies for right. uh, for atopic dermatitis, but the, amongst the safest therapies that we have is phototherapy. It's also inconvenient, uh, but but incredibly effective for many patients. So I use phototherapy. Uh, routinely for patients with widespread atopic dermatitis who are not uh, responding quickly to topical therapies and where perhaps they've needed a couple of steroid tapers to get things under control, where we've already patch tested them to make sure that they aren't um, reacting to something in their environment that, that could be controlled. And so, uh, and, and so we're looking for alternatives. So phototherapy is, is very useful in that setting. Uh, we use narrow band ultraviolet B that's the industry standard, I would say, now. 
and and has mostly supplanted Puva. And then the last question we had, I, I'm not sure if you can truly answer this or not, but as far as non-steroid topical medications, is Cerave any better than Vaseline? Oh, you Cerave. mean for moisturizers. Right, for moisturizers. Cerave. Right, right. Uh, Cerave, it's pronounced. Cerave. And, um, and so, again, uh, patient preference is really important. Um, and uh, if we're talking about a moisturizer, that's ultimately what, what you want. You want something that the patient's going to use. Um, there are barrier repair creams that are available now that, that um, do seem to have an advantage over pure um, emollients that, that are just sitting on top. And so uh, a product that contains ceramides is uh, likely to be helpful that way. Uh, the other ingredient to look for is dimethicone because um, that uh, provides a little bit of a surface coating that, that adds to the barrier. So a combination of ceramide and dimethicone, that makes for a moisturizer that might be a little bit more therapeutic. Um, but it's not a substitute for petrolatum. Uh, it, it, you should think of it differently. Okay. Cal, this has been awesome. I wanted to ask you if you had to give us a couple take-home points, things you really want to stress for our audience, what would those be? Well, I think uh, number one is um, read about your patients and, and for dermatology to bring yourself up to speed, especially when you know you're going to be seeing these problems again and again, um, getting some, some expert advice, maybe going to a conference, um, uh, taking a look at a lot of photos and images, and there are a lot of resources now available in that way, uh, can be very helpful in building your confidence. Uh, you you want to um, work on that because it's, it's likely to be something that you'll see repeatedly. And, and you should listen to your patients. I've, I, I think I've made that very clear. You can learn so, so much from, um, from their feedback. And you, if you engage them as partners in the therapeutic process, the patients say to me all the time, you're the boss. I say, no, we're, we're partners because in the end, I'm not going to go home with you. <laughs> and you're going to have to, you're gonna have to you know, do this yourself, but I'll, but I'll help you. Um, so I, I think that if you think about your role as, as a physician, as a teacher in that way, um, helping patients learn to, to manage their chronic problems, um, that can be a, a, a transforming uh, for the physician-patient uh, relationship. And it can also make your, your work life a lot more fun. You know, I, I end up getting to know my patients in that way, and, and, um, it, and it brings a lot of pleasure. So I, I never get tired. Like, like I tell all of my students, um, if you focus on the pathologies, um, you know, it's going to all get pretty repetitive very quickly. Right. But if you focus on that person, uh, you'll never be bored because every person brings, you know, their whole being to their problem. And that's something that's endlessly interesting. So uh, that is if you like people. And, um, you know, find a, um, find a local expert who you are comfortable with because I, I have a number of local um, internists who send me photos and um, I'm okay with that. Uh, and will help guide them to, as to whether those patients would benefit from consultation with me. And then, and then that internist is, is learning through the feedback. Uh, you know, I think that if you don't get to see um, the consequences of your, your clinical decisions, you don't really get to learn. So this is a good way of, of using our uh, technologies to, to uh, mutual benefit. That's great. I like I like how you ended with that this kind of like words of wisdom that can be applied across multiple domains here. That that's right. just awesome. 
I think this is going to be a really popular one. This was great. I think so. Yeah. You, Cal, well, you, you might I'm be in the running. You, uh... Oh, go on. Uh, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. What, what were you going to say? I was going to say, you might you might be in the running for a position at Cashlack Memorial Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, um, I've been teaching for a long time, and I, 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 I do, and I've been teaching internists for a long time. And, uh, and so, uh, and I, I, like I said, I spent three years uh, in the trenches myself um, working um, without any expert um, training. And, and so know what it is to try and, and find your way. It's hard. Uh, so what I can do to help, I'm, I'm glad to offer. Great. This has been another episode of The mm-hmm. Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And you can also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you will get a PDF copy of our wonderfully done show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com and you can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, here with... Brian Brown. Oh, excellent. Hi, Brian. (laughs) But no Paul Williams. And thank you to our producer and uh, who assisted in writing and producing this episode, Beth Garbatelli. She's not a Fratelli from Goonies, which she just told us. <laughs>